Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Holy Spirit, come and speak to our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, be seated, friends. Good morning. My name is Zach Barton. I serve here at the cathedral as the director of children's ministry. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I would love to chat with you at the back after the service. And uh, a funny uh, thing about me, some of you may or may not know, is that I met our good canon, Patrick Schlabs, 10 years ago this spring at seminary, which makes me feel very old. That seminary was 10 years ago. Uh, but we had, um, we had a, a lot of classes together, and one of those classes that we had together, Patrick, was an Old Testament uh, scholar, and the professor was from Australia, and she had a very thick Australian accent, and I loved her class. One of the reasons I loved her class is because she would say ancient Hebrew words with a thick Australian accent, and my favorite word that she said over and over again is central to the book of Genesis— because it's where we get the word Genesis from. So she said it a lot. And the word is toledoth, which means genealogy or generations. But that's not how she said it. She said toledoth <laughs> over and over. And uh, it's really crucial. Toledoth is really crucial to Genesis. And it's very crucial to our text this morning in Genesis 22. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, turn to page 16. And I admit that um, Genesis 22 is, a, is an odd text for a baptism Sunday. But if you'll hang with me, I think we'll make it out all right. So just to set the table, the book of Genesis is, you know, Moses telling the story of God's creation and the first generations to the children of Israel. And these genealogies in Genesis go from Adam to, to Noah in chapters 1 to 9. And then chapters 10 and 11, you get from Noah to Abram, who later becomes Abraham. And from Abraham, you go through the patriarchs all the way to the 12 tribes to the end of the book in chapter 50. And it's in chapter 11 that we first hear of Abram. And it's actually in the book of Joshua that we learn something about Abraham's uh, ancestors, his, his family. They likely were pagan uh, cultic worshipers who possibly, very possibly, worshipped the moon god. And so, all of a sudden, in Genesis 12, Yahweh comes to this aging pagan worshiper and calls him to leave his land and his family and go to a place that Yahweh will show him. TBD. And God promises Abraham that he will make him a great nation. And he'll give him and his wife, Sarah, a child, and she's getting on in years too. And God cuts a covenant with Abraham and later changes his name from Abram to Abraham, from exalted father to father of many nations. So God is creating a lot of tension here for Abraham and Sarah, changing their names. And at one point, this tension becomes too great for Abraham and Sarah, and they get impatient. They're waiting years and years for God to show back up and give them 
the child, and so they decide to take matters into their own hands. And Sarah gives Abraham Hagar, her servant woman, and she has a child named Ishmael. But God doubles down, and he says the promise is only coming through Abraham and Sarah. And so Abraham speaks up on behalf of Ishmael, and God promises to care for him. But he shows Abraham that you're not going to do it your own way. You have to do it my way. So now, Abraham has no sons. He's getting older. But God continues to promise a son through him and Sarah. And then years later, God comes back and tells him that he's considering destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, which is another sermon for another time. And God wants to talk to a human about something he's considering, which I think is fascinating. And that's where we get this famous dialogue between God and Abraham. And as you read it, you can kind of tell that Abraham is kind of walking on eggshells. And he says, God, if there were 50 righteous people in Sodom, would you spare them all? And God says, yes. And so he kind of goes down this hypothetical barter. He says, what about, what about 30? And please don't kill me for asking, but what about 20? And he goes all the way down to 10. And he says, for the sake of even, God says, for the sake of even 10, I won't destroy them. And then, oddly, Abraham doesn't ask, would you show mercy for just one? Isn't that interesting? He stops. And I think he stops short because it seems he hasn't fully grasped how God can be both a God of justice and mercy. He doesn't yet have an imagination for how deeply God can be just and merciful at the same time. But over the years, he's connecting the dots. Sometimes he gets it wrong, but he's following God. And I think that's a, an interesting piece to the puzzle of Genesis 22. As I said, Abraham likely came from this pagan family worshiping the moon. He's swimming in a sea of pagan cultic, you know, false idol worship. Moon gods, sun gods, your god, my god. Gods that seemingly require all kinds of terrible things from their worshipers. And up until this point, Abraham's story has been a story of a man called out of paganism, listening to the voice of God, and growing in his understanding of what kind of God is speaking to him. Who is this God in relation to the other pagan gods around him? And then, years later, finally, finally, when Abraham is so old and Sarah is beyond the years for childbirth, finally, God makes good on his promise and he gives them a son, Isaac. God waited until they were beyond their years for childbirth. And then God provides. The long-awaited promised one has finally arrived. Abraham has trusted and obeyed and failed and tried, but he's continued to follow God and he's finally rewarded with Isaac. The end. No. And then, chapter 22. Verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, 
Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will show you. This is reminiscent of the first call that Abraham got in chapter 12. God said, leave your country and go to a land that I will show you. It's interesting that God has not been giving Abraham explicit instructions. You know, turn left at the sage bush. Take a right at the olive tree. He's just putting these little breadcrumbs out for Abraham and watching him obey and follow the whole time. And this is kind of God's pattern with Abraham. God shows up. He gives him a promise and a command. Years of silence go by. God shows up again. He gives him an update, maybe a promise, maybe another command, more silence. And in between our verses 2 and 3 is one of the loudest silences in the whole Bible, in my opinion. But this time, it's not God's silence. It's Abraham's silence. He's waited. He's followed God. They finally have the son of the promise, and then seemingly, out of nowhere, without any explanation, God tells him to go and sacrifice the son who's been promised and delivered. Isaac is the only son he has left, and Isaac is the promise. He tells him to sacrifice his only son, and Abraham says nothing. And I mentioned that he spoke up for Ishmael, and we saw him barter with God for Sodom and Gomorrah. But here, inexplicably, Abraham says nothing on behalf of Isaac. And that has been, for me, one of the most troubling aspects of this story. I've been fighting with this text for a month, and it's been keeping me up at night. And this is one of the things that has really bothered me. And this week, as I was looking at the text and really kind of staring it down, I think I finally found Abraham in his silence. Because I think I found myself in a way. So if you've ever had a moment in your life where you thought the world was caving in around you, maybe some bad news or something in your life shattered in a moment, a common physiological response is to feel in shock. Kind of like those war movies when a bomb goes off and everyone's ee and they're disoriented and everyone's in shock. In the aftermath, perhaps you can't focus, you can't sleep. And I can't be sure because the text is silent. But I, when I remembered that moment in my life, I remember feeling out of my depth, like everything was caving in around me. And it was when I remembered that, it was when I found Abraham in his silence. Abraham has just received the most crushing development of his walk with Yahweh. Sacrifice the boy. And I could be wrong, but I think Abraham spoke up before because it was more theoretical. What about 40? What about, would you do it for 30? In this chapter, it's no longer theoretical. He's staring down the barrel of the end of the promises that God has been making and fulfilling. 
He rises early, likely because he has a long way to walk. But I wonder if he was already awake, just staring into the darkness at what was ahead of him. I can imagine him in a daze, perhaps what we might call dissociating, but he obeys, and he gets up. He saddles the donkey. He brings the servants. He cuts the wood. And then he begins the death march. Perhaps he was in shock. I'm not sure, but perhaps. But most certainly, all the while, this father is in anguish, thinking through every possible explanation. And all the while, God is silent. The text says he laid the wood on Isaac to carry, and Abraham carried the fire and the knife, and they went together. And then perhaps in a bit of ancient Near Eastern gallows humor, Isaac speaks up, and he says, Dad, we got fire, knife, wood. What am I missing? Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham's response is very possibly the crux of this whole text. Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb. God will provide for himself the lamb. This story is hard, but I'm glad that we have the New Testament and the book like Hebrews, because as Abraham is thrown into anguish, searching his soul, the author of Hebrews, thousands of years later, looks back on this text, and he gives us a peek behind the curtain of Abraham's dark night of the soul. Hebrews 11 says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, Abraham, considered. He hoped against hope that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, Hebrew says, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Hebrews is telling us that on this long hike up the mountain, Abraham believed that the only way this could work, the only way that he could drag himself up that mountain to do the thing is that God would have to raise Isaac from the dead. He said, we'll come back to you. Before they ever got up there, he says to his servants, we will come back to you. <clears throat> In 2000-something B.C., Abraham hoped in the resurrection of the son of the promise. And all of this so far in the narrative has been kind of brisk. God comes to him, you know, he wakes up early in the morning, cuts the wood, does the stuff, but then in verse 7, the narrator slows down for us, and he makes us really feel the moment as if we weren't already. In verse 9, they arrive, and it says, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Verse 10, then Abraham, narrator going into slow motion, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife 
to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. God finally speaks up at the last moment and Abraham obeys and Isaac is spared. And in this moment, or perhaps after having reflected on this entire ordeal, Abraham would know firsthand that God is not like those other gods. He does not require us to sacrifice our children. The death of Isaac was never God's intent. So what in the world was God's intent with Abraham and Isaac on this mountain in the land of Moriah? Why is this horrifying story in the Bible? I think we can say a few things, kind of starting from the, the, the outer and then moving inward. First of all, this text gives us a lot to think about in terms of God testing our faith. The idea of God testing our faith isn't some foreign concept to the Old Testament or the New Testament. And Old Testament scholar Walt Brugman basically says that we shouldn't be surprised when God asks us to do something we dread. Now, footnote. So I'll take a deep breath. We can rest easy that God's not going to require us to sacrifice someone in our life. Because someone in our life is not, is not the ancestor of the Messiah, okay? But don't be surprised when God asks you to do something you dread. God might ask you to move to Burundi to do mission work. He might ask you to start a homeless ministry at the cathedral. He might even be so bold as to ask you to serve in kids' ministry. <laughs> but what this is illustrating is that if this Christianity thing is real for you in your life, then following God will cost you something. Our gospel reading this morning in Mark, Jesus reminds us that true discipleship looks like dying to ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. Easy religion is not Christianity. If this thing isn't costing you something, it may not be the way of the cross that you're on. And as I mentioned earlier, the surrounding gods were thought to require child sacrifice. But here we see that God is not like those pagan idols. And one of the most insidious things about idolatry is that idolatry ultimately affects the weakest and the most marginalized among us, particularly children. It should make us stop and ask ourselves, what do the gods of our age demand of us? Or more pointedly, what gods of this age do we often sacrifice our children to? Perhaps it's the false god of success or achievement. Maybe it's the false god of comfort. And as a parent, I admit, kids make you tired and they can give you viruses. I've had too many of my own. It's more comfortable to just put them in front of a screen, right? It's more comfortable to not know the names of the kids in our church. 
It's more comfortable to not invest in their lives here because somebody else always will. And today, we're going to make vows to this family right here and this little boy. We're going to take vows together as they bring their son for baptism. Lots of focus is on Abraham's faith, which is right and true. But, but like baptism, this story isn't about what we do for God. It's about God providing. Some days, you're going to get it right. Other days, you're going to give up. But God is going to be providing. And that promise to your family will come through because God comes through. And that's what this whole text is about. God provides what he requires. Look at verse 8 again. I mentioned it was the whole thing. Isaac asks, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb. And there's something amazing that's been going on in Genesis with this whole Abraham story. From the very beginning of Abraham's story, the author has been weaving this theme uh, from a word, a Hebrew word, ra'ah, which means to see, which is where we get our word to provide. But it can also mean to see to something. God's going to see to it himself. How will God see to it himself? How is God going to provide the lamb himself? Well, most immediately, God will provide because he's not going to allow Abraham to kill Isaac. But God will provide the lamb himself because one day he himself will be the lamb. Remember, God isn't one of those angry deities killing Jesus. And Jesus isn't a helpless sacrifice. God the Father is giving him up for us. And Jesus freely gives of himself. Jesus comes to us for the joy set before him. And I'm drawing on Tim Keller here. Like Isaac, he carries the wood on his back up the mountain. And in doing so, he joins us in the horror that our sin brought in here. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who left his home and followed the voice of God, who obeyed perfectly even unto death. He's the true and better Isaac who trusted his father but was himself the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And here's what's more. We know because of some obscure passage in 1 Chronicles that this mountain in the land of Moriah where Abraham and Isaac are standing is nearby Calvary the mountain where Jesus was crucified. They could likely see it off in the distance. God's seemingly inscrutable grace is why Abraham, thousands of years earlier, named the place the Lord will provide. The Lord will see to it. There's still so much mystery in this text, but that's why God went about it in this way 2000 BC. God repeatedly stacks the odds against himself so that when he delivers, when he accomplishes his purposes, they demonstrate all the more his power and his justice and his mercy. And Tim Keller here, he has such a fruitful 
theological imagination. Here's what he says. Keller says that if Abraham had been at Calvary the moment that Jesus died on the cross, he would have been able to take God's words to him in this chapter and turn them around to God. And he would have looked up at the Father and said, Now I know. Now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love, from me. Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain is a vivid picture of the price that God paid to win us back. God saw to it himself by giving himself as the lamb for us and for the whole world. So how can God be a God of justice and mercy? God provides what he requires by joining us in humanity and sacrificing himself. Amen.